welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Well, here we are, week two on a series on the book of Revelation. May as well go big or else go home. Uh, um, And yeah, it's uh, this morning I want to think about... uh, from this vision of the Son of Man about moving from a, a sort of just getting by mode into getting back up onto our feet and into fighting the fight of faith, the good fight of faith mode. So moving from getting by to just um, and getting back onto our feet. So we'll come to that in a second, but I wanted to do a, just a little bit of a recap and uh, an extended introduction into the book of Revelation following on um, from last week. I guess it's probably because a part of my brain is saying, we may never, I may never take the chance to really go through the book of Revelation in any detail with Adelaide Place ever again. Who knows? We just don't know. So may as well uh, really lean into it as best as possible. And so what we said last week, and here's, here's why I want to kind of spend a wee bit of time on describing the, the book as a whole. It can feel a wee bit like, to me, you know the series Lost, that hit series where you used to waste like, like copious numbers of hours like watching. And the thing about this, if you've not seen it, is this series which we're all enthralled by. But by the end of it, we had not a scooby what the whole thing was about. There was all these weird strands of black smoke, of pressing a button or typing in a code every so often. And by the end of the whole thing, you're like... I didn't even know what that was about. And, and there's a sense of you just got, it's about people who had a plane crash and landed in Ireland. We get that. But there's a whole bunch of details you just got literally lost in as well. And the book of Revelation, it, it can feel a bit like that. At the start, it gets right, I, I kind of get what this is about. But then you go into the heavenly realms and it kind of can feel like, what on earth is this about? So last week, we said the, the type of literature it's is really important to grasp that in order to know the type of thing we're reading in order to read it well. And last week, we spent a bit of time describing it as an apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter. Now, I'm not going to go into any explanation of what that means. You can, I can refer you to last week. But the, the point was, the type of book it is radically informs how we read it in order to make sense of it. And it is a somewhat of a hybrid genre, which is, uh, which again, go back and have a listen just to get a sense of that and what the implications are. But to give you just a sort of one big idea and a bit of structure to get a sense of where we're going, I mean, it's always dangerous to, uh, to sum up a, a book in one big idea. I don't think it's always possible. But I'm going to steal one from a, a guy called Michael Gorman just to give you that at the start. Um, I, I, One of the big ideas of the book of Revelation is what it's trying to do is awaken worship and witness and help us follow the Lamb into the new creation. 
Now, I can take credit for the awakening word. That's my edit. The rest is this guy, Michael Gorman. You don't really need to understand much about that for now or that uncivil word. You just need to grasp the something. Worship is about our loyalty, what we are most loyal to. And there's something about how faithful we are affects our witness in the world. And there's something of a surprise in the book of Revelation on this cosmic drama that it's following the way of the Lamb that brings about the new creation, the hope. The hope comes in the surprising form, in the form, not in a dragon, not in a beast, but in the surprising person of a lamb. This is the big plot. It's about Jesus. It's about his life, death, and resurrection. It's about his overcoming sin. It's about his overcoming uh, Satan and the powers of evil. And it's set on that kind of cosmic stage. And the sort of structure, if you like, or the plot in the book of Revelation, if you want to really simplify it down into the four main movements, um, which we will walk through over the next few months, it'll, it'll be like this. So act one would be this opening vision of Jesus and his, his speaking to the seven churches. This is the sort of recognizable pastoral letters. And this is where we're going to spend this morning and the next uh, few weeks on this, this section of this opening vision and the seven churches. The second act is about uh, the central visions in the book of Revelation of, of the God and this lamb, this lamb on the throne. This becomes the centering vision of the entire book of Revelation. And then act three, there's a whole bunch of chapters from six through to 20 of how God brings about the destruction of evil, how God judges evil, how God puts the world right is a massive part before it ends. And all of it ends, kind of reading back, if you like, from Acts 4, where God renews, God wins. And it's a massive, hopeful story that we find in the last two chapters of Revelation. And so it's important for us as we read that to make sure that actually we, we trace this big idea and we really have a center as we read it because it's a book that can take us off in so many different uh, tangents. And of course, we will read that. And I, I don't want to get stuck in a rabbit warren here that I can never get out of, but I'm very aware that actually a lot of dominant thought in the West is of a certain materialist worldview, which is the idea that everything is explainable or reduced or arises from matter. It's a sort of physicalist explanation of the way things are in the world, including God. And whilst we exist in a pluralistic culture of many different faiths, all the more, there's a strong dominant lens to which we view truth, that in this world, a materialist worldview would very much, right now, if you sit with that in, in, in Western society, you'd be probably processing all what I'm about to say through the lens of where Sam was taken a couple of weeks ago by Harry Potter. And... It's just worth recognizing that there is there's something of a, 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 a different worldview here that the Bible presents of what reality is, what sort of metaphysics, what ultimate reality is like that clashes very much with our worldview of this dominant in the West. Though if I was to give any clue of where to start with that, it would say even this materialist worldview involves a leap of faith to hold and to believe. But that's a rabbit warren that we're just going to quickly avoid and get out of, just to note that how it is understood is significant. And so understanding the type of book it is and the mode of interpretation, we're leaning towards a sort of pastoral 
prophetic interpretation and a, a theopolitical one. It's, it's, there's a lot about empire and about God's reign and how that clashes with the kingdoms of this world. And it's more like a text which gives us a lens to view the world rather than a, a code that we need to somehow read and deconstruct and suddenly break and now we know how the world's going to end. We're, we're going to avoid that and read it more through the prophetic and pastoral lens. It speaks to concrete realities then, back then, which also echo now. There are, to put that into concrete, a bit more in our minds, there's a bunch of mistakes that we sometimes will make. And let me just list them. And you can take a picture, you can note them, and then you can just forget about them. Just to note as you read the book of Revelation. Some of the mistakes is come out of just failing to recognize the genre. It's like just basic trying to, I don't know, read, pick up and read a phone book. We don't have phone books anymore, but you know, pick up and read it as if it's a story. It just wouldn't make sense to you. We need to, we need to avoid failing to recognize the type of book it is. We need to, we, common mistake is failing to take Revelation as a product of and message to its own time. We need to think about its context, about the particularity it spoke to first before we just launch into trying to apply it. To today, we avoid uh, treating it like a puzzle, like it's some sort of like crazy puzzle that we just need to piece together. We avoid reading it in isolation from the rest of Scripture and the Christian tradition. And we avoid getting preoccupied with highly speculative questions of certain unknowable or less certain aspects of the book. There's a great temptation, and we might dabble in a bit of some of that, but there's a great temptation to start going into weird and wonderful things. And the the task when reading the book of Revelation is the task of keeping Christ at the center and the centering vision of the Lamb of God. And no matter where our minds take us, we discipline them to come back to that centering vision in the book of Revelation. Which brings us to the portion we heard read from Revelation this week on the Son of Man. The Son of Man vision and getting at being saved from a just getting by mode and trying to get back into a, back on your feet, fighting the good fight of faith mode. I quite like that in St. John's vision, God is also involved in the sort of knocking him off his feet in order to get him back going in the right direction again. And I guess I say getting by mode, and I'm thinking of lots of different things. I'm thinking of just being done in, just being utterly worn down and done in in your faith and in your life. I'm thinking about being overly passive or resigned in your life. I'm thinking of getting by mode in the sense of just feeling empty or powerless. I'm thinking of feeling like apathetic and just giving more over to fatalism. What will be will be rather than lively faith where God is involved in this world and our lives. I'm thinking about getting by also in the sense of just being overwhelmed by circumstances or even our own sense of failure at times. I'm thinking about when our head's not really in the game. Faith is a bit like, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian, but I've really not much more to say other than that. It's just a mode I'm in. I'm just getting by with work. I'm just getting by with uni. I'm just getting by with the ministry God has put in my heart. I'm just getting by with the hand life has dealt me. And 
also a sort of post-COVID or I can't even say post-COVID yet, but you know, like that mode we're in of just getting by. And there's something here in this text of moving away from that into getting back on our feet. And St. John's reality to begin with was predominantly one of, of getting by. In biblical and practical terms, he was in exile, a political prisoner. St. John was exiled on Patmos, completely out of sight of the churches he knew and loved and completely out of control and just at the mercy of the circumstances. And yet very quickly we can see the move. St. John exiled becomes St. John empowered afresh with the words and the vision of Jesus. And the question then becomes how and most importantly, what did John see? that so moved him from this sort of just getting by exile to this fresh sense of being empowered. It was clearly uh, an enlarged vision of Jesus. We can be sure of that. And we need to remember that for the first Christians, they, they knew the human Jesus very well. It wasn't hard for them to believe in the humanity of Christ who walked the shores of Galilee, who slept, who ate, who was crucified on the tree. They, they either, some of them seen that or else had, you know, were close to the witnesses who seen that. They weren't that far away. It wasn't hard for them to imagine the humanity of Christ, maybe even the way it can be for us. They knew that. The quandary in their minds would have been about reconciling the son of man title with this earthly Jesus. The son of man title comes to the people of God in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 describes a highly exalted and heavenly figure, a figure who was prophesied about, who would bring in the fullness of the kingdom, the ancient of days to rule and reign. And Daniel 7 says, as he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They were waiting for the surprising figure, the ancient of days to come. Except they had a particular image in mind of what that was going to be. He's going to kick ass. He's going to take the enemies out. He's going to do the stuff. This was the Son of Man. And John is clearly experiencing the expanded and glorified vision of Jesus. He has no qualms equating the titles for God we drew attention to last week with Jesus. God is the Alpha and the Omega, and Jesus is the first and the last he is equating the two. But they need to hold on to this tension in order to grasp Jesus, or else they would just slip off towards what others have. There's the book of Enoch, which has, goes after this sort of grand sort of son of man vision in all its glory with lightning bolts and power and majesty, and the one who just goes out, overthrow the enemies. And we easily slip into that if we don't hold before the vision that we have here, void of the mystery of very God and also very man with eternal glories being channeled into the ordinary. And so already, their fantasies of a sort of Danielic super show of strength of their enemies were long gone. But their actual temptation, they knew the humanity of Christ, in their time was probably more like to just put up with it, put up with the circumstances and go with it, and maybe go to some sort of stoicism, pulling up your own, by your own strength, putting up with stuff and 
just getting by with a grim moralism and a sort of joyless faith and like, this is just the way things are. It's not worked out the way we thought it might. In all its glory, this is just the way things are. We're just getting by. That's all we do. <laughs> Stuck now, we're just getting by. And they needed this vision to awaken their hearts. And the church would need it in centuries to follow. And I would suggest the church needs it afresh to awaken to the centering vision of Jesus. And so John gets this vision that he would then go on to take to the church, which we find given to us this morning in the scriptures. This vision of the Son of Man holding very God, very man together. This super heavenly figure now being crystallized into the true reality in the person of Jesus. And the first thing he sees on that day, on the Lord's day, he sees is a, is a piece of clothing. It's a long robe with a golden girdle around its breast. And before we know what the Son of Man looks like, we know what he does. He's wearing the garment prescribed for Aaron in this priestly work. You can read in Exodus 29, verse 5 about that. The Son of Man, the Son of Man is a priest. And kind of like just like a police officer's uniform would be recognized from afar, void of any details of what they look like or appearance. The, the robe just tells us for now what he does. The Son of Man is a priest. And a priest is one who, is, who builds a bridge. A priest is a bridge. A bridge towards God. Not, what you see is not a fortress or a wall built up. What you see in the robe, but void of anything else, is a bridge towards. A, a priest is one who bridges humanity in all of its weakness before God. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't take away. It just presents us to God and God to us. It creates this place of knowing and encounter relationship. The priest opens up access, as Eugene Peterson says, if the Son of Man does the work of a priest, there's much to be in awe of, but nothing to be afraid of. Because this mediation results in loving union. Much to be repented of, but nothing to despair. I love that. It's a sense of reality. Not hiding, but yet... In your vulnerability, you're held. You're not rejected. Son of man's a priest. An exalted figure, clearly up front, this exalted Danielic figure, dominion, power, authority. In the centering, first thing we see, he's a priest, one who would stand in the gap, one who beckons honesty, shares our humanity with empathy for our weakness and our suffering. Son of man. Just a slight aside on that. If we get clear on the unique priestly role of Jesus. We may also recall that those who go by his name, his church, are in some ways, as we're grafted into him, we have a representing a priestly role, not in the same way as the unique work of Jesus, but as people who point to his gospel and, and represent him in his world. And in some senses, arguably, you could say the first thing that the world should see in the church is something of a bridge, Something of a, a generosity, something lavish that draws you in. And my goodness, I, it doesn't take a genius to point to particular communities that could come to mind where the first thing they get is, is a list of things they should adhere to and, and live up to. And it becomes 
in effect, functionally like a wall rather than a bridge. But the, the people of God who represent him in their priestly role, we need to remind ourselves of his prior love, his unconditional generosity and his extravagant grace. It should feel like an invitation as we represent him. So he's a priest. The robe tells us that. The next thing John sees and is drawn into on the Lord's day is the white hair and the burning eyes, the piercing eyes. After the clothing, the head and the eyes are, are normally the first thing we start to take in. Um, all the more so in these strange days, you know, masked up. It's all about the eyes and the hair, really. And if the robe and the clothing represent a role, then the head and the eyes, in this case, represent the character. And in this case, the character matches the role, which is topical in many ways in this part of the world, in this country, with, with leadership under the microscope, rightly so, with things getting to the point where it feels harder for leadership to hold tenable positions, where the, the character matches the role. And even as I say that, I feel the role of leadership, and it's like... Other part of my brain goes, he without sin can throw the first stone, right? But yet here, and for once, the character matches the role perfectly. The priest is pure. It brings to mind that the fact, the words, that your sins are scarlet, but they will be as white as snow. They will become like wool. The psalmist says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And here, clearly, Christ is answering that prayer as the pure one. And hence the flaming eyes. So it's both the pure one and the purifying one. And here there is the sense, not so much that it's that these eyes, just think about and visualize these burning eyes. It's not so much a eyes that are just like turn or burn. Do you know? It's like that kind of, again, fend you off. But here they are the eyes that will burn and continue to burn not if you don't worship him, but will burn until the dross is burned away, until you're able to worship him more fully and are transformed. It's a transforming glance. It's not one that's an all or nothing. It's, a, it's the passion of one who wants you to become the person he created you to be and backs you and has given his life more so than we would ever back ourselves because his eyes will burn and pierce until he has formed his work in you. Purge me with hyssop in this journey of becoming the person God wants us to be. Not a fire that will burn us, but a fire that will keep burning as we learn to worship him more fully. The, the robe... The hair, the eyes, and then, of course, we have the feet. I don't like feet. I used to be a physio. I hated feet. I like these feet, but oh, if you came in with a problem with feet, literally, you just, yeah, anyway, it brings back bad memories. I once, I told you this, well, I once gave somebody, they had stinking feet, and I just couldn't be bald. I just couldn't bring myself to treat them, so I gave them the exercise daily of washing their feet in hot, soapy water. <laughs> I told them to come back in a couple of weeks and would take it from there. She, it's actually a really... Sincere thing that, anyway, back to the point. I don't like feet. <laughs> but here we got feet, bronze feet. Now, the listener is already attuned to Daniel through the Son of Man imagery. 
And we might then notice the contrast between St. John's image of the Son of Man and the great image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams of in Daniel that Daniel interprets for him. Again, what we said in Revelation was it doesn't quote Old Testament, but it starts to draw it to our imagination. So in some ways, if you don't know that, it makes it a lot harder to read Revelation. So in Daniel 2, there's an image of a world leader, let's call him. And they have this image, a head of gold, a torso of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet were a mixture of iron and clay. Now, the iron and clay did not make a good bond. The image itself was magnificent. I mean, the fine gold, the head, it was splendid. This was an incredible image of a, a powerful figure. But it was on a base that was flawed. A stone would come and crush it and it would be destroyed. Later, Daniel is addressed by a man clothed in linen, Daniel 10 and 11. You can read about that. He is also a precious and glorious construction, but his base is legs of burnished bronze. His feet are bronze. And indicating the succession of kingdoms on this earth, no matter how impressive or how powerful, they're set on shifting sands. As one writer points out, beyond my knowledge, bronze is a combination of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper won't rust, but it's pliable. Combine the two, and you have a foundation that cannot be shaken. And this is the message he's saying. He's saying, take heed rulers and kingdoms, and take heed people of God, what the might of Rome can get in you. The things that you build your life upon, money, power, success, all of these things, can look, things that can look magnificent, Success or whatever, however our culture defines it. But he says, just watch if they are not, if your base, if your life is not based on something, the person, the son of man, when the stone comes along, you can find yourself crushed, destroyed. The base that is offered here is of the ancient of days. And his feet, his feet are bronze. And then we have the, the mighty voice. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Notice it doesn't even tell, it doesn't really draw attention to what he says. It just tells us how he sounds. Like rushing waters, like powerful. It is calling to mind, you might even think of Jesus when his word, with his word, calmed the storm in the seas. And his disciples were like, whoa, who is in the boat? Military strength in the scriptures, many have argued, and I, I agree, is slowly converted into the currency of God king, in God's kingdom, which is his word, not his sword. Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. God's might and his strength is expressed in his creative, powerful, gracious, gospel-centered word. And his word has been embodied by the word, Christ. Christ's voice like his appearance, is powerful and commanding and life-giving. And how St. John needed to hear the voice of God speak to him again. And to recover a, a lively and anticipatory relationship with the Word, where it's not just a word we talk about, it's this sort of book, this dry, dusty thing that doesn't make sense to us, or it used to, and it used to enthrall us. But it is of a people who hear because the God is a God who speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks powerfully. 
And his voice is able to lift us up out of the getting by mode because we're people who anticipate him speaking. And that changes our life. It changes things and lifts us out of the slump of exile. We need his voice. You know those moments where we realize afresh that the scripture is not just meant to be a bunch of abstract ideas. But we think about worship, we celebrate a story that we get drawn into and we start to realize one of the ways we know this is true is because when we step into it, we experience it and we realize the truth of it. And God, the preciousness of God's voice, be it powerful or be it small and still, gets John back on his feet eventually, ready to move on from exile or to operate from exile with a new sense of empowerment. Then we see John sees the seven stars, the Son of Man holding the seven stars. What's in your right hand is what you're capable of doing. And the seven stars represent, in their worldview, the cosmos, like everything. The world as we know it. And in his right hand, in Christ, basically, quite simply, he runs the cosmos. He runs the world. That is what is in his right hand. This speaks to the absolute otherness of God, his transcendence. And I think this also then speaks to an anxious and overwhelmed world. And did you notice at the end when he states, I'm the first and the last, the words that commonly pop up, do not fear. What a message to a world at this moment. I referenced Don't Look Up last week if you went and watched it. You've lots of reasons to fear. But here we have one that says, do not fear. In my right hand is this transcendent image of a God who holds all things, the big things that we prayed about in his hand. It speaks to anxiety and it speaks to just a sense of an overwhelmed world or an overwhelmed pastor, John. And he starts looking again and goes like, you're in control. You're in control. And my role is to become more familiar with your non-anxious presence and to try and live out of that. And so you and I can probably naturally fill the things that might start to rattle and might take us towards needing this image, you know, our health. I don't know if you're one of those serial warriors about your health. It's, 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 it's a thing, right? It feels so beyond us, out of our control. It could be the security of the planet. There's good reason to be worried. We, don't, we, we genuinely believe there's, there's very horrible things going on and, and could in, in the sense of ecology in the planet. Or it could be just the things in life that don't you feel outside of your control? What's next? What, like, I, need, I just don't have control over the situation. John and Patmos, whatever's going on in his churches and here, he turns and he sees the Son of Man, everything in his right hand. And then we also have, finally, the, the thing he sees is his face, which is described like, was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. What comes to your mind when you think of God? And also, what comes to your mind when you think of how God thinks of you? 
Because here John, St. John, feels and sees warmth, extraordinary and lavish warmth in the presence of God. And I genuinely mean this. How do you genuinely see yourself in the presence and light of God? Amidst, even, sometimes even amidst all of the titles and roles that this world puts on us, rightly good roles, like you may be a father, a husband, a brother, a, a dad, a leader, a boss, a manager, a wife, a sister, a mother. We have all these roles that are telling us this is who you are and this is, we probably have a scorecard of this is how we're doing on all of those fronts. And sometimes you can just score yourself so badly and then it comes to our image of how God sees us and there's no warmth. How do you see yourself in light of God? As you come into his presence, do you see the warmth that is found in Christ Jesus? Because St. John needs this and St. John gets this in its fullness because in his presence is like the sun shining, looking at the face of God is a warmth, like, like, like a brilliance like no other. Do you feel that? Do you experience that? And you, you might be sitting here with, with all of these images going like, do you know what, that was all right for John. He, he, and the Lord says, Sunday, he went to a better church than us. And do you know, he got, I understand why he got back on his feet. You may be thinking, you know, this biblical witness to shows it's as dramatic as it sounds, but it's just not my reality. We, we only have kind of John's words to go by. We don't have the experience of what he's saying. And yet the biblical witness seems to show that in numerous places that such word and spirit encounters of Jesus, the Son of Man, is as relevant for us today as it was for John then. Think of Luke 24, and then when it's fulfilled in the book of Acts. Luke 24 is this moment where Jesus is with his disciples after his resurrection, and he's just done a wee Bible study with them, right? So he's, he's kind of showed them how all of the scriptures pointed to Jesus and showed them everything about it. You think that might be enough, a good Bible study, get all the facts out and, get, and just understand. But he importantly says this right at the end of Luke's gospel, which then gets completed in the book of Acts. He says, stay in the city, wait until the one the Father has promised comes. And then you'll be clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts, the Holy Spirit comes. And, and there's this combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And, and it goes on from there. And the, the Spirit in, in the New Testament is the one who just... He has many roles, but as the per, third person of the Trinity loves to shed light on the person of Jesus. He takes great delight in that. And how often it's true that whilst we know and want change out there, want things to change. Well, I, I don't know if you hear this one, you things you just need to change. You want to see change in your own life. You want something to open up. Something needs to change. I want change. I'm sick of just getting by. I'm sick of COVID. I'm sick of this moment. I want change. But how often God wants to do something in us before the change will happen. And they hear John, it's this reframe and given to him of the vision of, of Jesus that was given to him. As one writer puts it, from rocky Patmos, he is lifted to the realm of the spirit and given the vision of Jesus. He has returned to earth, made a pastor again, but this time a pastor with power, 
Rome had shut him away, but the Spirit filled his eyes with sights and his mouth with words that have given sight and direction to the church ever since. He was back on his feet because of what he had seen of Jesus. <laughs> Nothing had yet changed, but he had seen more of Jesus and he had understood more of Jesus getting back on her feet again. So in closing, a bit like what sometimes my spiritual director would ask me in, in this sort of mode, which aspect of Christ, the Son of Man, do we sense the Spirit is drawing us towards this morning? Now, he comes as a whole. We don't divvy up, and, and you get that. But God meets us in our point of need. Christ bends towards us. He speaks to us in different ways at different times. I don't know your life, but the Spirit of God knows your life. Which aspect of Christ, the Son of Man, is, is the Spirit drawing you towards this morning? Is it the priestly one where God is just wanting to, to minister to that place of empathy and humanity, weakness, failure, brokenness, and say, let's just start with I know and a bridge, a holding space, access to this loving union. Just I, I know what you've been through. I, I come and meet you as a priest. The Spirit loves to shine the light on Jesus. Is it the Holy One, the one who is pure and purifies? Are you so fed up with yourself and you yet need to come again to the one who hasn't yet given up on you and yet still comes and speaks in holiness with a burning passion to see Christ formed in you? The Spirit loves to shine the light on the purity of God and his power to change your lives. Is it the foundational one, the feet? God's saying, look at the way you're, you're, you're living your life. You got absorbed with all of these pursuits. Some of them are really good. They're not bad, but as foundational, they're going to let you down. And the Spirit's drawn you towards a reorder, a giving up, and a, and a, a replanting your feet down in Jesus. Is it the all-powerful, secure one holding the circumstances that keep you up at night, that terrify you? Or is it the speaking one, the voice that comes and speaks to you, the one that you pursue, the one who you meet in the night as, as warmth, whose face is like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, where you start to find the one who, who backs you more than you back yourself? The Spirit loves to shed light on the person of Jesus. So let's welcome and anticipate that as we submit to this Jesus afresh today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we began by trying to fix our eyes on Jesus as the one who is the author and perfecter, knows the beginning from the end. Help us in this present moment to see clearly, dispel our worries and our anxiety, or at least help us to bring them before you as 
And grant us the grace by your spirit to feast on the person of Jesus this morning. Whatever our circumstances may be, would you expand our vision? Spirit of God, come, we pray. Come and rest upon us as we submit to Jesus. Speak to terror. Speak to futility. Lord, bring your words of hope and life. How we need you, Jesus. How we love you. How we love that we can lift our eyes to you as the son of man who knows our, our, our weakness. We rejoice in you this morning. We worship you. Amen.